Well, good morning, everybody. I don't think winter is coming this year, do you? I'm okay with that, as long as the plants survive. I'm loving it, and I hope you are too. Hey, if you are visiting here this morning, uh, I just want to add my welcome. We're really glad that you're here. If you're joining us online for the first time, we also say welcome. Looking forward to spending some time in God's Word together. And I want to start out this morning by just asking you a question. What's your immediate response when you hear the phrase, big changes? Does that create a sense of excitement, maybe a little anticipation? For some of you, it will. Or does that create maybe a little bit of nervousness, right? And I, I think for a lot of us, it's probably some of both, right? Because changes always involve both new opportunities as well as potential risk. You know, I can remember when my wife Linda and I were transitioning uh, away from my career with IBM. We were following the Lord's leading into full-time mission service. At that point, we had two kids under the age of three, and uh, Linda had already stopped her counseling career to be home with the kids. So we didn't have her salary, and my new ministry salary was going to be less than half of what I had been making at IBM. And on top of that, most mission organizations, they don't really have a salary for you. And what I mean is this, the first thing you have to do is go out and invite some friends and churches to contribute toward your ministry work so the organization actually has the funds to pay you. So when you join a mission agency, they say, welcome, you know, we're so glad you're here. Now, uh, you better go find your salary because we don't have one for you. That's kind of how it works. So as we were making this change, there were some things that seemed kind of scary like that one. But even more than that, we were excited about the new opportunities that God was leading us to. We expected that God was going to go before us and prepare the way, and he did. So we all experience changes. Maybe it's a change in our jobs like that one, or maybe we make a move or have kids or retire. Those are the kind of changes that we can kind of see coming. And then there's a whole other category, isn't there? The kind of changes that just blindside us. Maybe an illness or a change in relationships. So as we look to God's Word this morning, I want us to just have a question kind of in front of us as we consider what we're hearing this morning, and that is this. How can we, as God's people, prepare ourselves to successfully navigate change? Another way of saying it is, you know, what, what can help us as we face the what's next in life, whatever that might be? Now, let me just tell you that today we are wrapping up our fall sermon series in the book of Joshua. We're going to be looking at the conclusion of the book, and at least as I read Joshua, it seems to me that the conclusion spans over the last three chapters. So let me just kind of give you the setting here. The people of Israel are facing some major change on the horizon at this point. First of all, their leader, Joshua, who's been with them like since Egypt, is really old now. 
And uh, soon his just steady hand of leadership is no longer going to be present. So what's the risk here? Well, if you've read the Old Testament, you know Israel didn't do very well in the absence of strong godly leadership. Sometimes they didn't do well even when they had that. Okay, so that's a pretty big risk. Another one is this. The people are transitioning to a kind of life that wasn't familiar to them. The adults had grown up in the desert of the Sinai Peninsula. And that was followed by several years of moving around, fighting some different battles in the Promised Land. But by the time you get to the end of the book of Joshua, the people are transitioning into a much more settled way of life in the land of Canaan. Many of them were going to be farmers. So what's the risk? It's this. They didn't know anything about farming. You know, they had spent their lives in the desert. You don't farm in the desert, you know. What grows in the desert? I'll tell you what grows in the desert. You grow hot in the desert. That's the only thing that grows in the desert, all right? So this is another big risk for Israel. And the last risk is this, and maybe this is the most significant of all. In the not-too-distant future, there would be a whole new generation of Israelites who had not personally experienced God's great miracles that he did on their behalf, leading them into the promised land. All of that was just going to be the stuff of stories told around the campfire by their parents. So what's the risk? Here it is. One generation can't live off the miracles of a prior generation. You may have heard the saying, God doesn't have any grandchildren. He only has children. What that means is that every generation needs to have a fresh experience with the reality of God. So how did Joshua prepare Israel to, to navigate these changes on the horizon? Well, that's what we see in the last several chapters of this book. So if we look at the last three chapters, what we see Joshua doing is he gives three farewell speeches, one in each chapter. Now, there's a lot of similarities between these speeches, so for the sake of time this morning, we're just going to look at the final one in chapter 24. And here's what happens in chapter 24. Joshua gathers Israel together at a place called Shechem. And then Joshua delivers this farewell speech, and then he leads the people in reaffirming their commitment to be the Lord's people. So let's look at how this starts out in verse 1. It says this, Then Joshua assembled all the tribes of Israel at Shechem. He summoned the elders, leaders, judges, and officials of Israel, and they presented themselves before God. Now, what I want you to see is there's, there's great significance as to the place where Joshua decides to gather Israel together for this farewell speech. They gather together at Shechem. What's significant about Shechem? Well, generations earlier, their forefather Abraham had received a promise from God to give a land to his descendants, the land of Canaan. You know where Abraham first received that promise? Right there at Shechem. So can you see this, the significance of it? Now they're standing there. They're not just a man. They're a whole 
people group. They're standing there where that promise had been first made, implicitly celebrating the fact that God had fulfilled this promise. And notice what this verse says. They presented themselves before God. So just bear that in mind, that everything that we're going to read in the narrative that follows, it's understood as happening in the presence of God. God, God's right there, like an active participant in what we're going to see. So I believe that if we uh, look at the rest of this narrative, I'll just tell you in advance what's going to happen. It unfolds in four parts. First of all, Joshua is going to retell Israel's history, emphasizing that God is the prime mover in their history. Secondly, he's going to exhort them He's going to remind them to be faithful to God as they move into the future. Third, Israel's going to respond. They're going to respond by recommitting them to be themselves to be the Lord's people. And then lastly, Joshua is going to create a memorial uh, to remember what's transpired, that, that, that event. So it unfolds in these four parts. And what I'd like to suggest is that in each part of the narrative, we see a way that not only Israel, but we could help prepare ourselves for future change and uncertainties that we may be facing. So here's the first one that I believe we see in this text today, and that's this. To take time to rehearse the story of God's faithfulness in your life. Take time to rehearse the story of God's faithfulness in your life. And this is exactly what Joshua does. In verses 2 through 13, he's retelling Israel's history. Now, it's a little bit too much to just stand up here and read this morning, but I want to give you a sense of what Joshua is doing. First of all, he retells their history in summary form. So from the call of Abraham to their time of slavery in Egypt, to the exodus from Egypt, to the miraculous victories that God gives him in the promised land. And as he's telling this story, he's emphasizing that God has been the main actor in all of this. And he does this in a couple of ways. One is how he tells the story. But secondly, he uses God's voice. So as he tells the history, it's as if God is speaking this to the Israelites. So just to give you an example of, of what we see in this passage God says this to the Israelites, they fought against you, but I gave them into your hands. You did not do it with your own sword and bow. So through all these verses, Joshua is emphasizing that God unilaterally worked on behalf of Israel. God called them. God delivered them. God guided them. God protected them. God was the one who blessed them with the promised land. All throughout their history, they could see God's hand at work. So let me ask you, as you look back at your own life, can you see evidence of God being at work in your life? Are you able to, to look back and to trace a trail of God's leading and provision in your life? This is what Joshua was trying to do for Israel. And as Israel stood here before Joshua, listening to him telling this story of their history, 
in the abundance of the promised land, I think it was clear to them that this experience, their present situation, was a gift from God. Look at how this little section closes out in verse 13. Again, God is speaking for them. And he says this, I gave you a land on which you did not toil, and cities you did not build, and you live in them and eat from vineyards and olive groves that you did not plant. Look at the blessing that's being described there. I mean, what God is saying is that the Israelites' new homes in the land of Canaan, they were move-in ready, right? No messy construction traffic in the neighborhoods, right? The streets were in, the houses were built, the gardens were already planted, the grills were fired up, like ready for everything except grilled pork. You know, that one wasn't on the menu, I guess, right? But we need to think about our own lives similarly. You know, one of the things that we've done in our life group on a couple of occasions, and I think that if you talk to people in our life group, they would tell you these have been some of the most meaningful times that we've shared together. We've had each person just do a little timeline of their own life. And not so much I was born here and then I went to school here, but sharing with the group places where they could see God at work in their lives. And I'll just tell you, it's such a great way to celebrate God's faithfulness in our lives. And not only that, when we look back at the past in this way, you know what it does? It builds faith for the future. We can head into the uncertainties of the future with this confidence and faith that God has been at work in our lives. So this is what Joshua is doing with Israel. So what's the appropriate response to such an amazing blessing that God had given them? It's to honor the gift giver. It's to be faithful to this God who loves you. And that takes us into the next section of the narrative. Joshua is exhorting Israel to remain faithful to God. So I think this is another thing that can help prepare us for transition and change in our own lives, and that's this, to to listen to reminders to be faithful to God. Listen to reminders. You know, not long ago, I scheduled an important meeting. But guess what? I forgot to put it on my calendar, (laughs) and I didn't set a reminder. And like, this never happens to me. And, And maybe I was overconfident. I don't know what I was thinking. What I know is this. I remembered about the meeting. I did not miss it. But I didn't remember about it until about two hours before the meeting. And that two hours of like sheer panic as I just scrambled to get ready for that meeting, it it was not a pleasant two hours, you know. Uh, and, And I just realized I would have been much better prepared for that meeting. I certainly would have been a much better frame of mind if I had just reminded myself. Now, this is what Joshua is doing for Israel. He's reminding them of something very important. And we need to remember, these are among Joshua's final words to Israel. Final words have a a certain gravity to them, don't they? You think about the, the dying father who calls his son to his bedside, and he says, son, remember 
take care of your mother. Man, there's some, there's some weight to those words, isn't there? Or you think about the, the wealthy businessman, Conrad Hilton, who was interviewed on television. And the interviewer asked him, you're getting quite old now, Mr. Hilton. What, what advice, what words of wisdom would you want to share with the audience? And Hilton famously looked into the camera and said, yes, I have something to share with every American, and it's this. Remember to put the shower curtain inside the tub. <laughs> but seriously, this speech by Joshua in chapter 24, it's like Joshua's last will and testament. It's his final words to Israel. So what would he share with them? What would those final words be? It's to be faithful to your God. We see this in verse 14, again in verse 23, some other places, but let's look at these. Joshua says, Now fear the Lord and serve him with all faithfulness. Throw away the gods your ancestors worshipped beyond the Euphrates River and in Egypt and serve the Lord. And similarly in verse 23, it says, Now then, said Joshua, throw away the foreign gods that are among you and yield your hearts to the Lord, the God of Israel. So just take note of some of these specific reminders. Joshua, first of all, says, fear the Lord. That means honor and respect and revere God. He says, serve him with all faithfulness. That means to serve and worship only the true God and no one else. And then he says, yield your hearts to the Lord. Yield your hearts. This, this is the verse that Carl selected as the, the title for our whole sermon series. And here it means to submit everything you are to God. So notice in this challenge to Israel, there's, there's two directions to the actions that Joshua's calling for. First of all, he's encouraging Israel to turn toward God, to, to serve Him, to fear Him, to yield to Him. In his other farewell speeches, he also says to hold fast to God, to love God. So the first thing he says is turn toward God, but then there's an opposite direction, isn't there? He says turn away from false gods. He says throw away the foreign gods that are among you. I don't know if you caught this. I think this is the only place that explicitly tells us in the Bible. The Israelites, throughout their history, were idolaters. Abraham's family were idolaters, right? In Egypt, they were idolaters. We know that at Mount Sinai, they were still idolaters, right? The whole golden calf thing. So this was not an you know, just an idle warning to them. They needed to hear this. But I don't want you to dismiss this warning because you don't happen to worship idols. False gods can be anything that we place our ultimate hope and trust in aside from the true God. And when we are heading into periods of change or uncertainty or transition, it's natural for us to feel insecure a bit fearful. And so I think it's also natural to put our hope that there would be things that maybe can control what we can't control. So maybe we place our, our hope in the, what other people can do or the influence of money 
Or maybe we center our hope in, in what medicine can do, or a political party, or even our own abilities. But listen, all of these, if this is where you're centering your hope, they are false gods. False gods are traps. Because false gods don't deliver the goods. They cannot control the future. Only our all-powerful, loving God is worthy of us placing our complete trust and confidence in Him. This is why we need to be faithful to Him and not turn to other things in our world. So, let me ask you, how are you reminding yourself of the importance of being faithful to God? Are you surrounding yourself with the kind of people whose lives demonstrate faithfulness? Are you regularly centering your thoughts on the Word of God and allowing it to directly remind us of the importance of this? Even better than that, are you memorizing Scripture so that it just becomes a part of your thinking? If you do that, you just have this ever-present reminder of the importance of being faithful to God. I stop and think about the opportunity we have this week at Thanksgiving. As we remember God's faithfulness and blessing in our lives, the appropriate response is to be faithful to Him. So whatever the means, we can all benefit by regularly reminding ourselves of the importance of being faithful to God. Now, the next part of the narrative, I think, shows us another step that we can take to help prepare ourselves for change in life, and that is this, to reaffirm your devotion to God. After Joshua reminds Israel to be faithful, what he does is he leads them in a a public expression of their commitment to be God's people. In the context, we would say that they were renewing their covenant with God. And if you read through the next section of this passage, it seems that this happened in two cycles. And we'll just look at the first one for the sake of time. And Joshua kind of gets it started in verse 15. So he's standing before the people, and he says this, But if serving the Lord seems undesirable to you, then choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve whether the gods your ancestors served beyond the Euphrates or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you're living. But as for me and my household, we will serve the Lord. In the next few verses, the Israelites respond, but at the conclusion of this response in verse 18, they say, we too will serve the Lord because he's our God. So the Israelites are re-upping their They're recommitting themselves to be God's people. Now, the interesting thing is that this same thing happened right here at Shechem a few years earlier. If you go back to Joshua chapter 8, you'll see that shortly after they first came into the land, Moses had told them to do this. They stopped here at Shechem. They had an elaborate ceremony where they remembered the covenant They worshiped God. They were committing themselves to God. So, what's the deal? Why why do it again? 
You know, can you imagine two guys standing there? The guy's kind of under his breath turns to his friend, Simeon, like we were doing this. It seems like it was yesterday that we were doing this, you know? I remember we were standing under that fig tree right over there, you know? So why the same thing, the same place, not much long afterwards? I'll tell you why. Because the Israelites, just like us, were human beings. And as human beings, you know what? We're quick to forget. We're quick to disobey. We are quick to turn away from God. And so we would be wise to regularly remind ourselves of what God wants for our lives. And I think periodically it's good to give fresh expression to our devotion and commitment to God in return. If you were here last week, you might remember that Carl was sharing uh, something that he found very significant in his own life at a particular point in time. And he shared with us the words of a prayer of John Wesley. This prayer is a commitment of self to God. That's exactly what this prayer is. And Carl was talking about a, a time in his life when he was feeling kind of down and disappointed and someone shared this with him. And I think what he was saying was that Wesley's words kind of gave expression to something he needed to do at that moment in his own life, just kind of redevote himself to the Lord. Well, it was interesting, Lynn and I were here last week, we were sitting right over here during the worship service, and as Carl was sharing this story, Linda quietly reaches into her Bible, pulls something out, and hands it to me. It was this exact prayer. Linda told me, I didn't know this, but she said she's carried that in her Bible for several years. It's been significant for her, too. So look, there's lots of different ways we could do this sort of thing. One would be to take something like this and allow it to provide the words for you to just kind of recommit yourself to the Lord. Or, as Dale was leading us in worship, what we were doing, we were singing some of the ancient Christian affirmations of faith. You can just do a search on Christian creeds, and a lot of these will pop up. These things that believers hammered out centuries ago that are core expressions of what we believe about God and what we are committing ourselves to. So, I don't know, you could get one of those and just read it to the Lord in your own quiet time with Him or maybe as a small group. But listen, there's no formula that's required. You don't have to go to the back of the hymn book, you know, and pull something that the denomination has used. I just think we would be wise to follow Israel's example. It's good for us to periodically present ourselves before the Lord and say, you know what, I'm still yours. I still want to follow you, just to declare that to the Lord. Now, the next part of the narrative um, shows us another action that I think can help kind of crystallize our resolve to continue to follow the Lord in faithfulness as we move into the future, and, and that is this. I think it's important for us to make a record of our present experiences with God so that they can benefit us in the future. I think we're all familiar with this idea of using objects to remind us of something in the future. And this is what Joshua was doing with the Israelites. So let's see how Joshua did this, starting with verse 25. It says this, On that day, Joshua made a covenant for the people. And there at Shechem, 
he reaffirmed for them the decrees and laws. So I think part of this ceremony was Joshua reading out the law of Moses, these instructions that God had given to Israel, how he wanted them to live. And Joshua recorded these things in the book of the law of God. Then he took a large stone and set it up there under the oak near the holy place of the Lord. See, he said to all the people, this stone will be a witness against us. It's heard all the words the Lord has spoken to us, and it will be a witness against you if you're untrue to your God. Then Joshua dismissed the people, each to their own inheritance. So Joshua did a couple things, right? He wrote stuff down. He set up this big stone to be a reminder, a witness stone. And so I think we're familiar with this kind of stuff. I mean, the thing that immediately comes to my mind is this. A a wedding ring. What is a wedding ring? It's an enduring reminder of a commitment we made to our spouse earlier. We've always got it with us, reminding us, right? But it doesn't have to be something expensive, like a, a ring or some you know, elaborate sort of ceremony. I mean, think about it. A photograph does the same thing, right? A photograph can take us back to a meaningful experience in our lives, like years afterwards. Evidently, we all know this already. You know, in 2019, Google estimated that nearly a million selfies were taken each day, and that was just on its Android Phones. All you iPhone users are way worse. I know that. (laughs) It's nuts, right? So look, Joshua didn't have a phone. So he couldn't do a group selfie, you know, of that ceremony so they could remember it. Even if he did, I don't think his arm would have been long enough to get everybody in the picture, right? So he used a different technique. He wrote stuff down. And then he erected this stone to be a visual reminder in the future of what had happened there that day. So let me ask, have you had moments in your life where you've created your own sort of witness stone to to mark something significant in your experience with the Lord? You know, at the beginning of the message here, I was telling you a little bit about the transition that Linda and I made into mission work. And I'll tell you a little bit just about what led up to that. So I have to kind of rewind the tape 10 years. When I was a sophomore in college, over the Christmas break, I attended this huge triennial student mission conference called Urbana. How many of you have heard of Urbana, a bunch of you have. These things got started shortly after World War II, and they're still going. There'll be one next year. Uh, This one was a little bit before my day, Uh, but over seven decades now, tens of thousands of college students have committed themselves to mission service at these conferences. And I was one of them. I can still remember perfectly exactly where I was sitting, exactly what was going on when I sensed God calling me to respond. And back in that day, 
we used a decision card to indicate how we wanted to respond. There were a bunch of things you could, could check off, but one of the things that I marked off was that I would seek preparation to become a missionary or serve in missions, however the Lord would, would want. That was a significant moment in my Christian life. But, you know, life went on from there. I was just a sophomore, so I, you know, I had to finish college, and then I married Linda, one of the best decisions I ever made. Then I decided to become a CPA, probably not the best decision I ever made because that involved sitting for the CPA exam. After that, I uh, started my career with IBM, and I think that's what the Lord had for me during those years. And then when I was just about 30, God started to stir up something fresh in our hearts. By that point, Linda and I had learned a lot more about God's desire to spread the gospel to every kind of people he's made. We learned that there were still in our day thousands of distinct groups of people that still had no church in their culture, and we wanted to be obedient to the Great Commission. Now, I assumed at that time that we would respond like most believers would. We would, uh, you know, get involved in what our church was doing in missions. We would start giving money to support that while I continued in my career. But around that time, there was an evening late. I remember sitting at our kitchen table. The reason I was sitting at our kitchen table is the Lord wasn't letting me sleep. And the reason I was up is I was praying. And I was asking God, what in the world are you doing? Because I had this growing sense that I could not escape, that God had something different in mind for us. And as I was praying, I was just asking God for clear direction. And then I sensed God speaking very powerfully to me. I don't think it was an audible voice, but it was just as clear as one. And what I sensed him saying in my heart was this. You're sitting on it. You're sitting on it. That's what I heard. I had no idea what that meant. So I just kept praying. In a little bit, it dawned on me. That Urbana decision card was in my wallet. I was literally sitting on it. I'd had it in my wallet for 10 years. I never thought about it. The only time I thought about that card was when I got a new wallet. And I would pull that out of the old wallet. And I can remember on more than one occasion stopping and thinking, I can't throw this away. This was a real decision I made. And I'd put it back in my wallet, and I would promptly forget about it. But that night, God let me know he hadn't forgotten about it. And he was essentially saying, it's time for you to fulfill that commitment. That Urbana decision card is one of my witness stones. It marks an important decision I made before God, and God used it later when I was entering into a period of change and transition. So let me ask you, what have been the decisive moments in your relationship with God? And have you found any witness stones to mark those moments. I know of a business owner who has a plaque in his office, and on that plaque is a life verse that he believes God gave him. It speaks about stewardship. 
And that's his witness stone. It reminds him that he made a commitment to God to honor God by the wealth created by his business. Linda has a piece of art that serves as a witness stone for her. It's a reminder of the kind of ministry that God has called her to. But it it doesn't have to be grandiose. We don't have to make ceremony. You don't have to roll a boulder into your front lawn. Your neighbors go, you know, what's that about? Oh, that's my witness stone. Let me tell you about it. Well, we're going to tell you we're calling the Homeowners Association. You know, so you don't have to do that. I know of people who just use a journal simply to capture and record important experiences that they've had with God, maybe decisions they've made, things that God has shown them. And by capturing it, it's there in the future when they might need faith or encouragement or direction. So whatever the form... I think witness stones can be a great way to remind ourselves of God's faithfulness and remind us of our own commitments to be devoted to him as his son or his daughter. So to conclude, let me just remind us of these four things we can see in this passage. And listen, as I read these again, I want to suggest that you ask the Lord, is there one of these that he might have you focus on this week. So here they are again. Take time to rehearse the story of God's faithfulness in your life. Listen to reminders to be faithful to God. Reaffirm your devotion to God. And then record it so that you can draw upon it in the future. Rehearse, remind reaffirm, and record it. So may God go with you, and may you be faithful to him as you step into the what's next of your life. Let's pray together. Jesus, we thank you that you have told us that you're always with us. You will never leave us. And we are thankful that you are faithful to us. Even when we fail in our faithfulness, you remain faithful to us. So would you build our faith, give us that confidence as we move forward, and remind us, Lord, that there's another part to our relationship. We want to be faithful to you. So give us the grace and the strength to be faithful and to walk with you. We pray this In your powerful name, Lord Jesus, amen.